0: This
2: is the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
3: Coming up, an Encouraging Jobs report bodes well for the economy.
2: If they actually show up and do an interview, there's actually a good chance of getting a job offer.
3: Sharp attacks on social media companies over online safety for kids.
2: You have
4: blood on your hands.
3: In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, a new push to speed up the return of Native and Indigenous American funeral objects and remains to tribes.
5: The unknowing of what's going to happen to those items because they're not in our care is very frightening.
3: I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. On Friday, a government report shows a big gain in hiring, roughly twice what economists had predicted, as well as a jump in wages. We asked CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger if it really is what pundits are calling a stunning burst of hiring. It is. I mean, 353,000 jobs, two
6: times what we were expecting. I think that I feel bad for economists, to be honest with you. They just can't seem to get these numbers right. And it does show that there's underlying strength in the economy. So the January result is good. The revisions to previous months was really good. If you look at all of 2023, there was an average of 255,000 jobs created over the year where we thought there was going to be a recession. So I'm so happy about it because it really does make me feel like, at least as someone who covers this, that all of the negativity about the economy is a little bit overblown. I mean, I'm not saying that prices aren't higher, but boy, when you can get 350,000 people employed, that's a great month.
3: So the whole chicken little the sky is falling at eh, not happening.
6: Well, not this month. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, so uh, I'm I'm I'm
6: not a person who likes to look for bad news. So I'll take the good when it comes, and the bad will also be there, you know. And, and I just want to make sure that, you know, people know that, of course, there will be a recession eventually. I just don't know when. And these numbers are, are really, I think, astounding and surprising. And, and uh, like, it's good to have a happy surprise sometimes. And wages are up, too. And what kind of jobs are we talking about? Is it across the board? Well, you know, it's interesting. Wages were up by 4.5% from a year ago. It's average. I know there are a lot of people who are like, I didn't get a pay increase. I get it. But we're talking on average. Many people did better than 4.5% and many people did worse. So, you know, interestingly, in January, there were some sectors that stood out to me. Professional and business services. Now, this is an area that used to be a pretty consistent job creator. And last year, Only added 14,000 jobs a month. Now in January, 74,000. Healthcare, 70,000. Retail, 45,000. Government, state, and federal, 36,000. Now, maybe that'll go away, but you know, this is a very wide range of job types that is underneath all these different sectors. So I can't tell you specifically if you're looking for a job in media that life is good. Because that's not a good industry and it's consolidating. But there are a lot of other places. Maybe there's a media services division in a healthcare company where you can get a job.
3: But there were a bunch of companies that made some pretty high profile layoff announcements, right? I mean, Google, Amazon, UPS. Does this offset any of the gains?
6: Well, you know, first of all, we don't know exactly when those announcements are taking place. So some of them, you know, yes, there are technology companies that staffed up like crazy during the pandemic. I mean, think about this. Amazon, at the end of 2019, I think the global workforce was 800,000. By the end of 2021, the workforce doubled from 800,000 to 1.6 million. Now they are laying people off. Maybe they went too crazy during that COVID era. But I think still the global workforce is 1.4, and a half million, So, still much larger. Technology is a much larger sector than it was before the pandemic. And they are losing some jobs, but there are they still have job openings posted in other areas. So, I think that that's something that's very specific to technology. There are other sectors, for example, when you think about media, where that is a consolidating industry. There will be fewer media jobs overall, and I don't think those jobs are coming back. So I think it's hard to compare those two. But yes, there are certainly announcements of layoffs. But what this report tells us is either those jobs are not reflected in the data or, or maybe those industries aren't as big a mover to the overall economy at this point. CBS
3: News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. A different report out this week has new thinking about how generative AI will affect tech and banking jobs versus those positions in warehouses that experts had been warning would be in big trouble we asked chief economist gad levanon at the nonprofit burning glass institute to explain how that changed
7: well ai got better and now uh, they can replace the tasks and abilities of uh, the white collar people uh, even um, some relatively sophisticated uh, tasks so uh, and abilities so that is kind of um, impacting uh, people higher up in the in the income distribution you might say
3: when you say AI got better, you mean it is better talking? It is better imitating what humans have been doing when they are writing things or doing legal cases or developing software?
7: Yeah, it's it's uh, better at collecting information. It's much better in uh, generating content out of the information. That's probably the main uh, improvement. So a lot of things that are related to and generating content out of language or out of images um, is uh, is what's the, the kind of the, the new big deal.
3: So how would AI, for example, do a better job with banking
7: than uh, actual human? Well, a lot of the uh, kind of the more routine um, jobs uh are, uh, I, I wouldn't say they are done uh, better than humans, but the thing is that they are done much cheaper. Uh, so, uh, therefore, uh, a lot of uh, jobs uh, or a lot of tasks could be done at a lower cost. And, you know, business uh, want to maximize profits, so they will use technology uh, if it's cheaper than humans.
3: So if they're using technology and it's costing businesses less, what does that mean for the actual jobs? Does this mean that people in banking and tech are going to go away because they're making way too much money than a computer that can, you know, write their software for them or handle putting together some sort of database for them?
7: Well, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, many uh, jobs will go away. Uh, you know, it's it has been happening already for many uh, years. Uh, it's just kind of that the type of workers that will be impacted are uh, kind of higher up in the, in the wage distribution.
3: That's Gad Levinon at the Burning Glass Institute. One note prolific actor Carl Weathers, who starred as Apollo Creed in the first four Rocky films, died Thursday, according to his manager. He was 76 years old. Coming up, social media CEO's on the hot seat. That's next on the CBS News with in
8: Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus
2: On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes.
3: This week on Capitol Hill, furious parents and lawmakers confronted the CEOs of the nation's largest social media companies during a bipartisan grilling at a Senate hearing on protecting children online.
8: Why are you keeping kids safe online? Why should parents trust Meta anymore? Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, along with the heads of Snap, TikTok, X and Discord on Capitol Hill for a grilling from lawmakers.
4: I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands.
8: The Senate Judiciary hearing room was packed with families, many of whom held photos of their children who have died by suicide due to online sexual exploitation senators focused much of their fire uh, on zuckerberg, zuckerberg who was forced to apologize directly to victims to families. families
0: would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people I, 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 I'm
8: sorry. he was testifying for the child eighth time
0: instagram also displayed the following warning screen to individuals who were searching for child abuse material and then you gave users two choices Get resources or see results anyway.
2: Mr. Zuckerberg, what the hell were you thinking?
8: SNAP CEO Evan Spiegel also aggressively questioned.
2: Did you or ever, and everyone else at SNAP really fail to see that the platform was the perfect tool for sexual predators? Senator, that behavior is disgusting and reprehensible.
8: I'm very happy with the senator's questions. They were very pointed, um, but I was not happy with the responses. For Tammy Rodriguez, whose 11-year-old daughter died by suicide after severe social media addiction, Zuckerberg's apology was not enough. When he stood up to apologize, he looked right in my eyes and there's no feeling or emotion. Also in the room, Shawna Pouch. She's raising her 11-year-old granddaughter, who she says was sexually exploited on Snapchat.
4: I'm very frustrated with listening to these CEOs. How many more children do we need to lose in order for this to
9: change?
8: The next step is entirely in lawmakers' hands. I pressed the chair, Dick Durbin, and ranking member Lindsey Graham about what they will do next. They say they want to reform the law to allow users to be able to sue tech companies, and they plan to bring that to the Senate floor as early as this fall. Jolene Kent, CBS News, Washington.
3: A California teen is being charged as an adult for a swatting incident at a Florida mosque. That's what police call false reports of active shooters and bomb threats.
2: Prosecutors believe they have their suspect. Run, Alan Winston Fillion could be one of the most prolific and dangerous swatters they've ever encountered.
7: I'm going to commit a mass shooting in the name of Satan.
2: Investigators say the 17 year old California resident has been calling in numerous disturbing and fake threats. Last May, he allegedly threatened a mosque in Seminole County, Florida, adding gunfire in the background. Hello, He's allegedly targeted Washington State, Texas, Florida, and Maryland at times, including hate messages denigrating race, religion, and sexual orientation aimed at mosques and historically black colleges and universities. Court documents even point to Philly swatting FBI facilities and say he was likely to threaten senators and the Supreme Court. Tracking him down was not easy. On Telegram, he would disguise his identity with usernames like Nazgul and Payment Arma, a fictional language from the Lord of the Rings books and movies. As investigators closed in on him, They discovered that the suspect was also selling swatting services, $40 for a gas leak, $75 for a bomb threat or mass shooting. Fake threats that tax law enforcement resources and put real lives in danger. The ammunition's real, the guns are real, and it just puts a lot of people in a dangerous situation that's uncalled for. These swatting calls have real-life consequences. In an unrelated incident in 2017 in Wichita, Kansas, a man was shot and killed by police who showed up at the home because of one of those fake calls. If he's convicted, this suspect could face up to 65 years behind bars. Jeff Begay, CBS News, Washington. If you own a Tesla in the
3: U.S., it's probably being recalled. Reporter Jeff Gilbert.
7: Tesla's recalling two million vehicles, nearly all of those it sold in the U.S., because the font size is too small on warning lights. That will be fixed with an over the year update. Meanwhile, the government has upgraded a separate investigation into complaints of power steering issues with more than 300,000 Teslas.
3: More bad Tesla
1: news. For years, Tesla has been improperly disposing of oils, batteries, paints, and other hazardous materials produced at its facilities across the state. And according to a lawsuit filed by 25 California counties, that toxic waste may have ended up in landfills. Tesla owner Scott Carrillo was disappointed in the company. When people first purchase a Tesla, you're thinking you're doing the right thing by purchasing a green car, but... It sounds like they're doing some things that are a little bit shady. A judge has ordered Tesla to pay $1.5 million in fines and penalties. The company has not commented on the lawsuit. Matt Bigler for CBS News,
6: Fremont, California.
3: On Friday, people were holding their breath to get the weather prediction on Groundhog Day. WTAJ-TV's Maria Kate in Pennsylvania.
10: Gobbler's knob filled to the brim. I'm so excited. Groundhog Day is my favorite holiday of all the holidays. People scurrying in from near
1: from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania
10: and far
1: from Houston, Texas
10: to see the seer of seers, the prognosticator of all prognosticators.
2: Groundhogs It's just like such a Pennsylvania tradition.
1: I'm here to learn the language of the groundhogs, uh, learn a new skill and communicate with them.
10: Even Governor Josh Shapiro made it out to Gobbler's Knob.
2: Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania is the center of the universe.
10: Punxsutawney native Brandon Ishman wanted his friends from St. Francis University to experience all of the fun.
1: I don't think a lot of them realized how big of a deal this was. I had to get them up here at least one time while I was in college and make sure that they kind of saw the experience up here.
10: The age-old tale is will Phil see his shadow or not? So what did the groundhog goers think?
1: He doesn't see a shadow. Shadow, but it doesn't matter because he's always right.
4: Early spring, hopefully.
1: I'm going to go no shadow.
4: Early spring, but it's probably not going to happen.
1: He's not going to see a shadow because it's cloudy. No shadow.
10: I'm hoping for early spring. And the verdict for 2024.
1: But what this weather did not provide is a shadow
0: (laughs) or reason to
10: hide. Well, you heard it from Phil himself. Early spring, he did not see his shadow. So I think we're off to a pretty good start for the beginning of 2024.
3: But in the Florida Keys. Waiting for the mollusk meteorologist. People waited with bated breath for a queen conch, that's a shell, you know, to make its prediction at Aquarium Encounters and Marathon, Florida. Yes! But this conch did see its shadow, predicting six more weeks of winter. That's not so bad at a place where the average high temperature is 75 degrees. Coming up, a former hostage speaks out. That's next on the CBS News Weekend
11: Roundup.
2: On the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
3: I'm Allison Keys. Some Israelis in Tel Aviv are holding nightly protests against their government, demanding an agreement with Hamas to bring home more than 130 hostages still being held. CBS's Deborah Pata spoke with a woman who was kidnapped in the Hamas terror attack on October 7th with her three young children. She's been released, but she's speaking out for
11: others. It was a moment of pure joy. Afri, Yuval, and Uriah Brodets reunited with their beloved family dog, Rodney. Together with their mother, Hagar, they'd been dreaming of this during 51 days in captivity. Wow. It was a...
9: It's a moment that I will never forget. You both shared, really. You thought
11: she'd lost everything.
2: And then I got them back. It's just, you know, I, I was living a miracle.
11: On October the 7th, as Hamas militants stormed their kibbutz, Hagar was hiding inside her home with her three children and their neighbor's four-year-old daughter.
9: The fear that you feel when you hear the,
11: the death is coming. Her husband, Avichai was wounded in the attack. He thought they were dead, but they'd been taken to Gaza, where they were held in a building above ground. Did you hear the fighting? Yeah. The,
9: the house, we, when we were stayed, it was collapsed from the the IDF bombing. And what did you say to your children? How do you give them hope? We ju- I just told them every day,
11: it's going to be OK. But it was not OK. Not only were they smack in the middle of the war, Hamas had told her her husband was dead. So you spent all your time there grieving? I didn't
9: cry because I couldn't cry. Uh, I have to take care of my kids. I was sure that Israel would rescue me. But uh, after uh, you're staying there for uh, such a long time with your kids, um,
11: You you lose your uh, hope. Abichai never lost hope, inspiring the campaign to bring them back now. But he's worried the Israeli government is not doing enough to bring the rest of the more than 130 hostages home.
7: And I think they're being paid to do something and they're not doing it. They're not bringing people back. They need to know that it's their only mission.
11: His family is slowly healing, They all sleep in the same bed at night, and their dog Rodney never lets them out of his sight. He's like a pillow
9: for uh, their tears and for their hugs and for their bite. Does Rodney sleep in the bed? Yeah. So I should have
11: given it six. Yeah.
2: He's the first one in in the lost town.
11: (laughs) Deborah Patter, CBS News, Tel Aviv.
3: This is a new report details the mental toll on the children living through the brutal conditions in Gaza. Some have seen their parents killed in front of them and other terrible things, and some have been facing starvation and lack of clean water.
12: The UNICEF report found that even before the war between Israel and Hamas began almost four months ago, half a million children were already in need of mental health support. Now that number has doubled to one million, almost all of the children currently in Gaza. UNICEF spokesman James Elder says thousands of children have died in the war.
2: I feel like I'm almost failing in my ability to convey the endless killing of children here.
12: The report found that an estimated 17,000 children were either orphans or had been separated from their parents. Linda Gradstein for CBS News, Jerusalem.
3: CBS's Kami McCormick with a report on a new poll finding half of U.S. adults think Israel has gone too far in its war with
4: Hamas. Support is also falling for the Biden administration's support of Israel. Just 31 percent of Americans approve of his handling of the conflict. This new poll from the Associated Press and Nork Center for Public Affairs Research finds more Republicans also believe Israel's response to the Hamas attacks has been too heavy
3: handed. Now to Sudan, where the United Nations Food Program is urgently calling on warring parties there to allow the safe delivery of humanitarian food assistance. Some 8 million people have already been displaced from their homes. CBS's Pamela Falk.
4: Ten months into what the UN calls a forgotten war in Sudan, the bloody conflict involving mass killings and rape between the military and paramilitary forces, the hunger and refugee crisis in Sudan has reached a breaking point, the latest violence in a 20-year war with over 20 million people dependent on aid, particularly in Darfur. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, places the blame squarely on the warring parties.
1: This is the fault of those that sacrifice the interests of their people for
4: a pure struggle for power. In Port Sudan this week, the UN's refugee chief traveled and spoke with people displaced by fighting and losing hope, where more than 13,000 people have been killed and some 25 million people, 14 million of them children, urgently need humanitarian assistance, including nearly 18 million people who face acute hunger. Pamela Falk, CBS News at the United Nations.
3: North Korea fires a new round of cruise missiles off its west coast. Reporter Alex Jensen from Seoul.
2: This fourth North Korean cruise missile test in 10 days appears to be part of efforts to develop a range of nuclear threats. That includes from the sea, as also according to state media, leader Kim Jong-un just visited a dockyard that may be vital to his country's development of submarines that could potentially fire missiles and pose an even greater nuclear threat.
3: The power of collaboration on display in Minnesota, where state troopers and others joined forces to save a life. WCCO-TV reporter Uba Ali with details on a precious delivery.
10: When you hear sirens and see flashing lights like this, you might think you're about to get pulled over. We were dispatched for a call for service to do a blood run. But this wasn't traffic trouble. It was a mission to get life-saving blood, specifically platelets, from Red Cross in St. Paul to a patient at a hospital in Morris, quickly.
0: Oftentimes we can send it via cab or with our own Red Cross driver, but if it's an emergent situation, we need to utilize state troopers.
10: State trooper Deanna Wayne and six others jumped into action forming a 170 mile relay from the metro to west central Minnesota.
0: It is a well oiled machine.
10: Matthew Fanning with Red Cross says this collaboration with Minnesota State Patrol is crucial especially when smaller hospitals don't have platelets on hand in a dire situation. It's
0: not a, a product that has a long life on it and we need to get it to the patients. In a fast manner.
10: In Trooper Wayne's dash camp, you can see her take off and then hand off the life-saving supplies. thank Thank you. Between her and a half dozen other troopers, the trip took just two hours.
0: That relay system works for them and works for us, works for the patient.
3: Coming up in the kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, returning indigenous tribal objects. That's next on the CBS News weekend roundup.
6: Rocket Money has over five million users and has helped save its members an average of seven hundred and twenty dollars a year, with over five hundred million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to RocketMoney.com/slash/Wondery. That's RocketMoney.com/slash/Wondery. RocketMoney.com/slash/Wondery
2: on the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
3: Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including race, This time we're talking about new federal rules meant to speed up the process to return Native and Indigenous American funeral objects, remains, and other artifacts to tribes. Institutions such as the American Museum of Natural History in New York and Chicago's Field Museum are closing halls or covering display cases as the rules require them to obtain consent from tribes before displaying or doing research on the artifacts. We spoke with Myra Macio-Zamora, an archaeologist and curator with the Pachanka Band of Indians in California about what this means and the healing it brings to the tribes to see these items safely home.
5: The original law was passed in 99 but with our new you know refresh to the law it has allowed um, museums and institutions to kind of relook and reevaluate how they're handling NAGPRA. I think with the new regulations it's um really been a change in timelines and in, in reference to how um, museums and institutions are working with indigenous communities um, better. But it also is, I think a lot of people don't realize that you know, there isn't um, the same amount of funding across institution and museum you know, across the U.S. So the the funding is really important and the resources of how much funding you have, how many staff people you have um, at your institution really reflects how fast and how quickly you're able to do this type of work.
3: So let me back up and ask you, as a layperson... I mean everybody's seen the movies where there're the artifacts from Egypt and of course I'm in DC with the Native American Museum I've been to the Natural Museum of Natural History in New York and there are a lot of things some of it are from some of it are from burial grounds some of it are for other things so is it that the museums acquired these in unfortunate ways I mean from from grave robbing and that kind of thing or Did they come to the tribes in the first place and say, hey, can we have these items and display them?
5: No. So I think part of what needs to be highlighted is with a a lot of those institutions that have been around, you know, 100 plus years, um, you know, the history of how the ancestors and all their belongings um, came to that institution. And if, you know, we're talking late 1800s, early 1900s, Um, where there was no consultation with that indigenous descendant community when something came in. So the, the idea of control, um, and as an indigenous person, not having a voice, um, was, is really now part of the law and also having a say of what is going to happen. So, you know, what's happening now is these, um, these institutions are dealing with the the past that they've inherited the past hundred years of you know collecting or donation and grave robbing um and that's really rooted you know unfortunately in a lot of the archaeological practices in the u.s uh, that now it's it's a lot to deal with now you know it's it's these large-scale multi-year projects of returning loved ones home and all their belongings. So I think it's on the institution side, I also see how it can be very overwhelming. Um, But then, you know, it's very important. And it's that type of work of of bringing a loved one home is very emotional.
3: Has this changed the tenor of the conversations between your communities and the museums, who I know in... In some places, I mean, like the Egyptian Museum and the British Museum have fought bitterly over exchanging things that they probably should not have had and collected in, you know, questionable yeah. ways. So, is this helpful that you'll that you're finally going to be able to have items treated with respect and displayed or not displayed in a way that is okay with your culture?
5: Yeah, you know, I think this the resurgence and the refresh. Um, to the new, the the law on Nagpra is very helpful. It puts a whole new light on how consultation, and by consultation, I mean actual meetings with museum staff and you know Indigenous people, and how those uh, need to be conducted. How our oral history, you know, our our history that's been orally passed down to us. Um, how serious that needs to also be taken. You know before this, there was a lot of turmoil um, with indigenous communities and museums and institutions because yes, we were fighting to say that is that item came from someone's grave and we're fighting to get it back. Now I'm very hopeful with the new NAGPRA regulations that a lot of those conversations, um, will turn more in a positive light and there'll be a better understanding of you know what is spiritual, what is sacred to us, and the reasons why it needs to come home. I feel like with the new uh, regulations, there won't be so much question on the other side of why do you need that? Why does it need to be returned? You know it's that um, awful feeling of ownership, with, the, with, the, with many of these institutions and, you know, I always acknowledge, yes, you have been taking care of it for X amount of years, um, but that is also a, a care duty. It's not a feeling of ownership and it's okay to release that item or, and that ancestor back to where they were taken from. I think it's also important to acknowledge these past histories of how relatives and all of their things even got to the museum. And that's a really hard conversation that I've had many times with museums and institutions um, in the manner of of how our relatives even came there. And that past of, you know, we're not in this conversation, conversation to blame, you know, the living staff people today, but it's important for everyone at the table to know the history and to acknowledge it.
3: Have there been apologies from some institutions? I, I And I should back up and say, I know that some of them have gone out of their way, they say, to work with the Native American and indigenous communities to say, here is where this came from. It probably shouldn't be here, but we have it because this and we're sorry and we're going to fix it. Or are you, or are the ownership, is the ownership feeling causing well, has it been causing a lot of tension?
5: So the the experience doing a Nagpra consultation um, is very different every time, um, and it is very it's and it's a true reflection of how many you know resources and financial resources that museum and institution is putting forth to Nagpra. Um, you know, we've had many apologies um, in the past, and I'm grateful for those acknowledgements of the history. And uh, it's also a a really nice acknowledgement for a native person that this is an emotional process for us. This is not easy. Um, And then we've also had institutions that um, have not apologized, have not acknowledged it and the relationship and working through bringing a loved one home uh, becomes very hard and very challenging.
3: I'm curious, can you give some of our listeners who don't know what we're talking about some examples of some of the, of some of the items we're speaking about? I mean, is it, it's, it's much more than simply grave markers, right?
5: Oh yeah. So this is like personal, um, you know, your, your personal possession. So if you think of today, you know, the, the things that we use in our everyday lives, and I know today is. Um, very different. We, a lot of things that we use in our lives, we don't uh, create ourselves. We don't make ourselves. But if you think of a time when you did um, create, when you did make your dishes, when you did make your, you know, your bag, you carry every day, you made, you know, the pottery, the the glass you drink out of, um, you know, we think of all the things that we use in our daily lives today, um, and thinking back to the relatives that put the time and the energy and their spirit into the items that they used every day, and then those are taken um, and put on a museum shelf. That basket that was that you created and you made um, was you know removed from your home. And you were separated from it. So, in our um, in our traditional uh, life here, everything that is a possession, a personal possession with you, you take on to the next life and the next cycle of our world. So, to have your personal possessions separated from your body, from your spirit, is very unsettling. And I feel like a lot of many people today can also acknowledge because as human beings, we do have many possessions. We do have items that are close to us. And if you can um, understand how those items become part of you, they become part of your spirit. So to visit an institution and see a basket who. um, a relative of yours made sitting on a museum's shelf, completely separated from any of our other relatives, is hurtful. And there is great reason for that basket to come home. And then the, you know, what, what no one's talking about is how healing it is to know that your relatives are safe, of how healing it is to know that your relative's basket, that their, you know, personal um, jewelry, their pottery, that it is safe now and resting in your care, in tribal care. The unknowing of what's going to happen to those items because they're not in our care uh, is very frightening.
3: I wonder if we're talking about a situation where for many or most of these items, there needs to be some sort of cleansing ceremony, right? Or, or, or something like that to restore them to the place in the universe where they should be.
5: Right. And each tribe, you know, I only want to speak for Pechanga, but, you know, each, each tribe we do have, um, we're very lucky we do have those ceremonies. Um, and we're able to bring, you know, relatives and, and their belongings home safely. And I think many tribes across the U.S., um, you know, we're all able to do that. I think the understanding and the level of understanding of that is sometimes hard for the public because they are not uh, a part of those uh, societies. They're not, they're not seeing those ceremonies um, taking place, but that doesn't mean that they're not happening.
3: When you say bring them home and this sort it sounds like a stupid question but I think it's not. This doesn't mean that families are going to get to keep these artifacts in their homes, right? But they will be in a place where they are surrounded by the energy of other items from the same tribe, is that right?
5: Yes, yeah, so when it and, and every item is different and every tribe also handles the return of of their things differently um But for us, it means bringing that item or that relative home to literally rest in the ground. Um, And we take, you know, putting them back to where they were taken from, I think is important um, to acknowledge. And for other items, you know, putting them back into tribal care. So if that means... Um, putting them back into a tribe's, um, you know, controlled space where the community can enjoy them and also putting them back into use. And I know for some tribes, putting them back into use for ceremony, um, you know, those are the elements of care that are very important for tribes to be able to continue.
3: That's Myra Masil Zamora, an archaeologist and curator with the Pachanka Band of Indians. Coming up, a tribute to a Broadway pioneer.
11: That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup.
2: On the CBS News Weekend Roundup, I'm Allison Keyes.
3: Grab some champagne, even if you're just sitting at home watching the Grammy Awards on Sunday.
12: Like r star SZA is going into Sunday's Grammy Awards show with the most nominations. The Kill Bill singer has nine, including album record and song of the year.
0: She'll definitely take home a couple. OK, it would be very, very, very surprising if she were shut out completely. I tried, I- Artists
12: Phoebe Bridgers and Victoria Monet are right behind with seven nods each. Is a- Monet is up for best new artist. She'll face off against Ice Spice, Jelly Roll, Coco Jones, and more.
2: And Victoria Monet was the
0: surprise multi-nominee of the year. Seven nominations, that's a lot for a relatively, I don't wanna say unknown artist, but a lesser known artist. So I'm kinda
12: of pulling for her, myself. Taylor Swift once again made Grammy history with her nod for Song of the Year. Thanks to Anti Hero, she is the artist with the most Song of the Year nominations. She's actually never won in that category, but could break a record for wins in another.
0: Taylor is obviously the one to beat, um, but it's it's kind of interesting because this is not, I don't think anyone would say it's their favorite Taylor Swift album, album of the year. If she wins, it'll be her fourth, which will be a record.
12: Trevor Noah will host the Grammys for the fourth consecutive year, but this time he's also a nominee. He's up for Best Comedy Album for I Wish You Would.
4: I get to
1: enjoy the fact that I'm nominated. But the night's got to go on. The show's got to go on, and so uh, I'll have my mind elsewhere at the time.
12: In addition to awards, there will be star-studded performances. You too will make history guys. with the first ever broadcast performance from the Sphere in Las Vegas. Billy Joel, Billy Eilish, Olivia Rodrigo, Burner Boy, and Travis Scott are just a few of the artists said to take the Grammy stage. Don Backes, CBS News, Los Angeles. Speaking of music.
0: Please. The door. Nothing is different. We've been here before.
6: Turn the Lights Back On is Billy Joel's first new single in 17 years. Rolling Stone calls it a tender love ballad that doubles as a message to fans who've been waiting for something fresh since he dropped this song on Valentine's Day 2007. Oh my The 74 year old wraps up a decade long residency
3: at New York's Madison Square Garden in July. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. The Super Bowl is coming up, but so is a 20 year old celebration of some favorite canines. WCAV TV's Brianna Kiefner.
1: The puppies get to showcase all of the amazing things they have to offer, and the country gets to see how incredible rescue dogs can be.
8: Each of these puppies will play games and get to show all the incredible things they can offer to a home while spreading awareness about rescuing a
7: pet.
1: For us in this small community, it brings our village together. We get to have a blast celebrating these dogs, having a good time.
8: Ahead of the Puppy Bowl, some of those star athletes have already been adopted, like Levi and Bogey.
5: I just thought he was the most amazing animal ever. He was ginormous at puppy Bowl, It was just a lot of fun and um, I just couldn't live without them.
8: Green Dogs Unleashed has sent special needs puppies to the bowl for many years and each year they say it gets bigger and better for these puppies that are looking for a
7: home.
1: This gives uh, the community and uh, the general public the, the opportunity to see just how incredible deaf and sometimes deaf and vision impaired puppies can be. They can do absolutely anything any of the other pups can do.
3: Dogs not your thing? Try a cafe where an oink oink here and an oink oink there is incredibly welcome.
0: This cafe in Tokyo is anything but boring. With people going hog wild with micro pigs.
9: Oh, they're just so cute, um, so tiny and, and so small, and kind of want to take one home now.
0: Swooning over the swine costs customers fifty cents a minute. And pigtures with the tiny trotters are included.
9: But we just thought the pig cafe was a little bit different. I mean, yeah, something that the kids wouldn't always be to hold and pet.
12: You
0: know? My Pig Cafe's Instagram page connects the pig piles to their thousands of loyal followers. Micro pigs stay tiny, not growing any bigger than a corgi. But cafe bosses say they have big personalities. <laughs> Each pig is unique, she says. You may notice one may be strong-headed and another may be gentle. Contrary to popular belief, the pigs are quite clean. But critics have raised ethical questions. Uh, Governments have a responsibility to kind of make sure that these things are certified and that the animals are being uh, sourced
4: ethically and that there isn't any kind of illegal trade involved.
0: But cafe owners insist their pint sized porkers are loving the attention and living high on the hog. Ian Lee, CBS News.
3: Finally, the dancing feet and inimitable voice of Broadway legend Chicha Rivera are silenced now. The two time Tony winner and born star died this week at the age of 91. CBS's Vlad Dutier has this remembrance.
6: Why don't we paint the tack? Jazz.
1: as Broadway's original triple threat. Cheetah Rivera stunned audiences with her dancing.
10: How would you like to put it
1: down over? Acting and singing for more than half a century. Rivera catapulted to fame as Anita in the original 1957 run of West Side Story. She continued to shape iconic Broadway characters, starring in the original productions of Chicago, Bye Bye Birdie, and The Rink, which earned Rivera her first Tony Award in 1984. Born of Puerto Rican descent in Washington DC in 1933, Rivera was trained as a dancer. When she jumped from bar to Broadway, she dazzled theatergoers with her mesmerizing moves. Even a 1986 car accident that threatened to keep Rivera off the stage did not stop the star. She went on to win her second Tony Award for the title role in Kiss of the Spider Woman. Rivera made history as the first Latina to win a Kennedy Center honor in 2002. And in 2009, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In an interview with CBS Sunday Morning last year, Rivera reflected on her success. I do believe that
6: being a dancer gave me the ability to fight and to withstand and to cope. If I come back, I want to come back a
3: dancer. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News.